PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. Some researchers in Bakken are oversimplifying a very complex problem. The fact that this study was as large as what it was, I thought it might be able to tease out what very small difference there might be between a region-specific and a non-region-specific manipulation. And that didn't happen. People might prefer to keep doing whatever they do, but there's an option now. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, Spinal Manipulative Therapy and Low Back Pain. PTJ recently published the results of a large RCT examining the immediate effects of region-specific and non-region-specific spinal manipulation. The results appear to reinforce existing evidence and raise tantalizing questions about what mechanisms may be involved in pain relief. For today's discussion, we have manual therapy expert Dr. Chad Cook and the study's senior author, Dr. Leonardo Costa. And now, our moderator, PTJ editorial board member, Dr. Stephen George. Welcome to the PTJ podcast on spinal manipulative therapy. My name is Stephen George, and I am an editorial board member with PTJ. I'm also an associate professor and the assistant department chair at the University of Florida. I'm now going to ask one of the authors of the paper that spurred this podcast, Leo Costo, to introduce himself. Hi, everyone. My name is Leo Costa. I'm an associate professor from the master's and doctoral programs in physical therapy from the University City of Sao Paulo. I'm a physiotherapist with my research background and preferences related to clinometrics like measurement properties, clinical research involving low back pain patients, and research methodology in general. And now I'll ask our content expert who's agreed to join us, Chad Cook, to introduce himself. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm Chad Cook. I'm a professor and chair in the Division of Physical Therapy at Walsh University. I'm an associate editor for manual therapy and the former editor-in-chief of the Journal of Manual and Manipulative Therapy. I have about 35 to 40 publications specifically in the area of manual therapy and a textbook in its second edition. Glad to have you aboard, Chad. We're very excited about the conversation. I'm going to briefly set the stage as I think issues for this patient population being low back pain and this intervention being spinal manipulative therapy or SMT are fairly well known. There has been an increase in the number of trials suggesting that SMT may be a viable treatment option for low back pain. Interestingly, with this body of evidence, the theories for the active ingredients for SMT have come under some scrutiny or renewed interest. Specifically, there seems to be a shift in the traditional view of SMT as a purely biomechanical phenomenon that may release adhesions or correct faults to more of a view of SMT having potential for interaction with the nervous system and affecting pain processing either directly or indirectly. So with that as the brief background for this podcast, I'd like to ask Leo to provide a brief review of the paper that brought us all together. All right. 
this paper itself has an interesting story, so I'd like to tell a story for the PTJ listeners. The first thought of this paper is a very experienced manual therapist with a strong osteopathic background. His name is Ronaldo Oliveira. He was one of my students for the master's program in Brazil. This guy came to me about three years ago with some ideas about spinal manipulative therapy for back pain patients. And at that point in time, he was extremely enthusiastic about the beauty of physical examination in order to get the correct spinal level to be manipulated, as well as how the vertebra should be manipulated. So after reading a lot of the literature, we decided to set up a study using general approach to decide how the vertebra should be manipulated. In addition, we would like to know if this decision-making process would be beneficial for patients with back pain, which is my area of research. As Steve just said, there's a lot of manual therapies, osteopaths and chiropractors who really think that kind of manipulative therapy is a biomechanical correction or biomechanical adjustment for vertebrates and the patients would get better if these adjustments are done properly. There's a quite a lot of studies investigating biomechanical and non-biomechanical effects of SMT and to date, the literature has been showing that the effects of SMT are much more complex than simply biomechanical adjustments or spinal adjustments. However, the interesting thing by reading the literature is that most of the studies who are trying to understand the mechanisms of SMT on the back from the healthy participants or just small studies in patients with back pain. So we decided to go for a large randomized control trial, including only participants with low back pain. And we decided to test the immediate effects of a single high-speed spinal manipulation on this population. At that point, we decided we're going to measure not only pain intensity, but also pressure pain thresholds to give us a feel how the system should work. So basically what we've done, this is a classic randomized trial. The patients were assessed by a physical therapist who decide what would be the ideal level to be manipulated based on a physical examination. And after this, the patients were randomized in two groups. So the physio has to manipulate the vertebra according to the level of the physical examination, or the patients were randomized to be manipulated on an upper thoracic spine. Soon after the manipulation, the patients were reassessed. As I said before, it's an immediate effect by a blinded assessor, and they measure pain intensity, pressure pain threshold, possible side effects, and we also measure assessor blinding. For pain intensity, what we found was both groups improved in terms of pain intensity, so they got better, about two points on an 11-point pain numerical rating scale, but we haven't detected any between group differences, so it did not matter where we manipulated, the patients got better anyway. For pressure pain threshold, what we found is that the patients who were manipulated according to the examination did not improve at all in terms of pressure pain threshold. And the patients who were manipulated on the upper thoracic spine, they improved the pressure pain threshold a little at the lumbar levels, but not remotely. So again, no between group differences. So it didn't really matter where we manipulate these patients. We detected no side effects, which is good. We confirmed that the assessor was blinded, and we observed a small correlation between changes in pain and changes in pressure pain thresholds. Well, thank you for that review, Leo. And now we're going to turn it over to Chad and get an idea of his reaction to the article and the findings. Well, I have to hand it to the authors. I actually think it was a really well-designed trial. And some of the real strengths 
were the fact that there was a clinical population with moderate disability. They powered it to actually be, for manual therapy purposes, a, a relatively large sample size of about 148 subjects. And they also included individuals anywhere from 18 to 80. Thus, they captured the population that is routinely treated, I think, with manual therapy and clinical practice. And frequently, you see individuals above the age of 60 that are excluded from these trials. So I really hand it to them for including folks above the age of 60. And as Leo already mentioned, you had blinded assessors, and they actually checked for the blinding after the fact, which I think was a real nice touch. I do believe that the clinical measures that they used were actually very good, not only pain, but pain pressure threshold. And love it or hate it, it's a unique measure that captures something different other than just reported pain from the patient. It showed great ingenuity to actually target the upper thoracic region, which even though that's been targeted a number of times in immediate effect studies, to do that in a primary low back pain population and compare that to a region-specific a pragmatically selected area that the therapist got to pick, I think shows real ingenuity in designing the trial. I think that should be complimented. It was a really nice study. There are some weaknesses, and to be fair to the authors, they recognized the majority of these weaknesses right off the bat. They were straightforward with it. The first one is immediate effects only. And Even within the study themselves, they indicate that before this is transferred to clinical practice, we need longer-term follow-up to see if the immediate effect findings actually transfer to long-term findings. And having done some research in this area on both the periphery and the spinal region, I think expecting immediate effects to transfer forward to long-term effects or even between-session effects, it may not happen. As Leo mentioned, too, and as I mentioned in the paper, there was no true control, but to be fair to the authors, it's very difficult to have an appropriate control group in a manual therapy population if you're trying to do a a sham manipulation or something. Patients figure that out fairly quickly. Thank you. I'm now going to ask Leo a focused question, and then, you know, Chad, feel free to jump in. I always like to ask the authors, and thank you, Leo, by the way, for the story behind that. It's always nice to hear the story behind the study. But I just want to hear from your perspective, what was the most surprising result in this study for you when it was all said and done? Well, to be honest, we were expecting this type of results. I think this study responds much more about mechanisms of effect rather than clinical efficacy of spinal manipulative therapy. So physicians don't have to be disappointed with our results. But there's a better picture now how we should go further and design better studies or larger studies or to respond different clinical questions about the efficacy of spinal manipulative therapy. So I totally agree with all comments from Chad. And as he said, we acknowledge the limitations of our study in the paper itself. Were you at all surprised about the pressure pain findings? Um, we do expect to find some difference. Looking at the literature, we thought that they're going to detect some differences, but that's the result, so that's what we found. I'm happy with that. Chad, do you have any comments on that? I mean, the pattern was a little interesting. Regarding the pain pressure threshold? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think the authors handled that one well. They talked about the fact that you often need a clinical change of about nine or so to really be significant with respect to that. And by all means, I'm no expert on pain pressure threshold, but having read and discussed the selection of this measurement with a number of individuals who do this, I'm no longer surprised by anything that I see with pain pressure threshold. And I know it's different than the Coronado et al. finding, 
and it is somewhat unique. It makes one wonder if there's a stronger effect associated with manipulation to the thoracic spine than the lumbar spine, if there's truly something there. It's certainly worth following up on. And the other thing I want to point out, I too am not that surprised with the results, but I have to admit, the fact that this study was as large as what it was, I thought it might be able to tease out what very small difference there might be between a region-specific and a non-region-specific manipulation. And that didn't happen. I think everybody who has read the literature now agrees that a non-region-specific manipulation has an effect. There are still those holdouts that will say a region-specific manipulation that was going to have better results, etc. And I know this is immediate effects, but this study was large enough that those results would have teased out and they didn't. So I think that probably is the most surprising finding for me. So let me play the role of the holdout then. When I look at the point estimate for the between-group difference, it does favor the region-specific by a half a point on the VAS. Do you think that is a potentially meaningful finding? Well, if you're asking me, are these results going to sway how I treat the clinical population? I'll be honest, I'm going to wait for that study that gives us follow-up to those immediate effects because I've been a vocal critic of the studies that suggest that the findings are clinical, and that's not what Dr. Costin and his group are suggesting. They say that in their paper. They're not extrapolating this to a situation in which you should change your practice. Immediate effects can occur from a number of things outside manipulation. I mean, a moist hot pack, ultrasound, I mean, there's a litany of things in the literature that show that immediate effect that can occur. Consequently, to answer your question, would I use an upper thoracic minute versus a region-specific minute for treatment of patients with chronic low back pain? I would still default at this point, based on the literature, to a localized clinical treatment. And I purely state this because, to my knowledge, there is no study that has carried that forward on whether a region-specific versus a non-region-specific beyond immediate effects has a better clinical outcome. I would still focus on that region-specific manipulation. Leah, what do you think? What's your reaction to that? Well, I totally agree with Chad. Like, sometimes a lot of students came to me and said, so can I manipulate it anywhere I want? I said, well, sometimes if the air is too painful and you think it's easier to go for the thoracic spine, your patient might have some improvement on this anyway. But at this point, I think this study is a good start on new lines of research. So people might prefer to keep doing whatever they do, but there's an option now. So I don't need to be very specific based upon this study, and maybe patients are going to be more comfortable to be manipulated at thoracic spine. So it could be a way of adjusting the treatments. Spinal manipulative therapy probably involves a lot of neurological mechanisms that we still don't know exactly what happens, but we know some of it and it may help us in the future to understand better how the SMT might work. Yeah, I agree. And I did want to get to this. Um, it's like, go ahead, Chad. So I was just going to mention that I think we may be dealing potentially with a site issue too. And, you know, Emily Slavin and colleagues' paper, they did a meta-analysis and they looked at all the immediate effects studies that were performed on local versus non-local at the neck and then local versus non-local at the low back. And they did find a significant trend in their data that if you treat locally at the neck, you're going to have a better immediate effects outcome. But if you do that in the back, there doesn't seem to be a difference between a regional versus a non-regional effect. 
And so it may be a site issue. I mean, certainly we need more research in this area, but it seems that that specificity piece is more important at the neck, and there is some research to support that. Whereas if you look at some of the clinical trials that have used a non-region-specific manipulation, they still have really strong success. Yeah, definitely. So we've talked a little bit about the immediate effect, and given that there was a correlation, but not an overwhelming correlation between the pain pressure change and the clinical pain ratings, that certainly suggests there are other mechanisms involved, even in the immediate responses to spinal manipulative therapy. So what's the unexplained part that we need to explain more in future studies? There's quite a lot of research happening at the moment about non-specific effects, but there's quite a lot of studies talking about satisfaction, expectancy, even placebo effects, psychosocial factors that might play a role on this. The problem is that we try to separate these issues. So is it biomechanical, is it neurophysiological, or this psychosocial? And some researchers in back pain are oversimplifying a very complex problem. That's what I think. So thinking about the results of the trials that we've do or any other trials that are published over the last 10 years, some trying to get simple answers for a very complex problem. So at this moment, I'm very happy that some people are studying expectation, satisfaction with treatment, rather than only pain and neurophysiological effects and all of sort of stuff. So I think we need to understand this and see how it goes in the future. Seems like a good lead-in for you. Chad, do you want to talk about your thoughts or your experiences in measuring that other? Yeah, you know, I wish I had a crystal ball on that one because you think you have your arms wrapped around it and then something else comes out or some new revelation comes up. I don't think the other components play as big a factor as neurophysiological effects. I mean, that's just my gut instinct. I have nothing to back that up. In a long-term trial, those other components can greatly influence the results of the comparative trial, patient expectations, even placebo being a factor in that. And then what we found in our clinical trial that went out a little past four weeks was the, the therapist's preference for a technique and what they think is going to help was actually related to a positive outcome in the patient compared to when they use the opposite technique. Now, I don't think that was the case in this particular study because the clinician didn't have a vested interest. It didn't appear that they had a preference toward one technique versus another. It looked like there was pure equipose, as Leo said. They didn't know if one was going to work better than the other. They thought there would probably be no difference, and that should be the initiation of any study. In our clinical trial, we captured expectations of the patient to see if that influenced the outcome, and our findings indicated that it didn't. We were very surprised with that. So this one has stumped me royally. I know there are other components at play. And like I mentioned before, I think neurophysiological effects are going to be the primary component. But we know these are short-lived effects. The research studies, both by Stevens' PhD student, Roy Coronado, who looked at thrust manipulation, and then Eric Hegedus and colleagues who looked at mobilization, the effects you know, are anywhere from five minutes to 24 hours max, and we're seeing carryover clinical effects with manipulation. So there's got to be something, and that's the exciting part of it, I think, is that we keep looking into it. Yeah, thank you. At the risk of shameless slugging, we did take a stab at this as part of Joe Bailofsky's dissertation, and he did publish a model specific to pain perception, a conceptual model that's been very helpful and I think 
certainly as fMRI has been more widely used in the general pain research field, I think it would be very interesting to see what the effects are in cortical pain processing of spinal manipulative therapy. All right, we need to work towards the closing comments now. So we will first start with Leo and then move to Chad to hear any final comments they have on today's podcast. Okay. Um, this study, we are really happy that we put some new piece into the S literature. But when I treat back pain patients, I always think about prognosis, maybe because my wife's line of research is about prognosis. And the prognosis of chronic low back pain is not very good at all, especially guys who have more than one year of pain duration. So I think the next step is really trying to replicate the results from John Child's group about subgrouping. So I think it would be really nice if we could do a new study getting patients who are bad responders or comparing bad responders to good responders to spinal manipulative therapy and see if we could detect bigger changes. Anyway, I think my feeling on this is that we should try to think about including a new component, and this new component would be subgrouping patients who are more likely to respond to spinal manipulative therapy compared to non-responders. Thank you. Chad? You know, when I look at the results of the findings of this study and then other immediate effect studies, I think there's an overwhelming consensus now that there's a non-regional effect in manipulation, especially at the spine. Now, having done some studies that look at that initial immediate effect and whether that carries on to a between-session finding or a long-term finding at discharge or the prognosis, as Leo said, it doesn't always flesh out that that within-session or immediate effects finding actually leads to a meaningful clinical finding and success for the patient. So I think the next step for researchers is to as Leo says, identify responders versus non-responders. What are the criteria that are going to tell us that if you get that immediate effect finding, that you should continue on along the same path with that individual or not? And are there truly differences? Because, again, this hasn't been studied yet, between regional and non-regional manipulations that have a carryover clinical effect. Now, I'm not stuck in some old guru camp suggesting that this is going to happen. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me that much if we find that that's not the case. But to truly be evidence-based, we have to look at the studies so far, and there are none that I'm aware of that have looked at this beyond immediate effects that can suggest in clinical practice that it really does not matter at all where you manipulate somebody along the spine that you're going to get positive effects. So that's what I look at with this. Well-done study, immediate effects, collaborates findings within the literature, and it's time for researchers to take it to the next level and perform a long-term carryover effects prognostic study. Great. And I'll just add my two cents before I thank you guys. I think we do not know who responds in the chronic population that Leo recruited here. So I agree some replication of the earlier clinical prediction rule, but that is very heavily weighted towards folks with shorter duration. It would be a wonderful contribution if we could find a parallel decision-making tool that would help us tailor more robust effects from spinal manipulative therapy to this chronic population. So with that, I would like to thank you both for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Thank you. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. 
This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening.